Okay, the kids can go to children's church, and if you are possessed of a Bible in your lap, you can open it, actually open it to Genesis chapter 15, way, way back in the beginning there. And then we'll make our way over to Matthew 23. How's that? <laughs> oh, let me pray one more time. Father, as we approach your word, we are privileged to look at the words of our Lord Jesus himself. He's been pretty brutal on the Pharisees, and they deserved it. Uh, and we deserve, Lord, to hear what he has to say as well, to protect us from making the errors that they did and leading us in the right way. Thank you for our Savior who spoke with such clarity and power. And we ask you to help us focus on his words this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there comes a time in the history of nations as well in the lives of individuals when there's a day of reckoning. Um, it's still in the memory of many people that are alive today. If you're very old, like myself, um, you lived during um, the 20th century or parts of the 20th century, you uh, witnessed that reckoning come to nation states that were thought impregnable and very powerful. Um, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Empire, um, on and on and on, many little uh, lesser countries, even the British Empire collapsed during the 20th century. It's all within living memory of people that are still around, but God, the judge of all the earth, is not asleep. I guess that's the way to say it. He sees, he remembers, he's making an accounting. Uh, and when it's time, according to his schedule, he brings nations crashing down, and governments, and people. Sometimes they literally go out of existence, whole people groups. Wickedness ultimately cannot stand before him. It will be paid out in due time by the righteous judge of all things. Sometimes the rise and fall happens really quickly. Um, Babylon rose really fast and fell really fast. Nazi Germany, the revolutionary France. Um, other times civilizations are permitted to just plod along for century after century after century, steeped in evil for a long, long time. And then the end comes, sometimes very quickly and decisively. Nations like people have an accounting. There's a, a day of reckoning. Records are being kept. Unjust laws, oppression, corruption, bribes, idolatry, immorality. God knows all of those things. We had our own brush with um, destruction in the 1860s in the United States. There was a reckoning of evil that cost our country 600,000 lives. That's a lot of people, 600,000. The President of the United States back then said in his second inaugural address, he said, woe unto the world because of offenses. He's quoting Jesus here. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God have always ascribed to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, 
If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That was President Lincoln five weeks before he was killed shot dead there's an accounting and what wisdom that man had to perceive all of that um, I literally cannot imagine a politician saying that today you know this war it's God's judgment on our people for wickedness you'll never hear that oppression unjust laws bribes corruption lewdness idolatry immorality trafficking human beings God knows all of that stuff. He sees all of it and he's keeping track. And God's wrath is, is kindled against all wickedness. And wrath, it overhangs wickedness and it can burst forth upon it at any moment. And only the patience of God restrains his wrath. So justice doesn't sleep. It's waiting. Justice is waiting. Time is granted to men to see the ugly fruit of sin and evil and make changes. That's what God is giving people opportunities to do. When change does not occur, ultimately judgment comes. And sometimes the Bible very strongly suggests there's a saturation point at which God just has to move against a nation in power. Wickedness becomes so great and so common and so accepted that his patience just comes to an end. There's an interesting line in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is one of the key chapters in the whole Bible. It, it's a detailed account of God's covenant with Abraham, the most important covenant um, until the new covenant. I mean, the Abrahamic covenant, this chapter drives the entire biblical story. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Because Abraham is the foundation of the nation of Israel. And the covenant with him compels everything, impels it forward. The Lord reveals to Abraham an actual plan that he has for the future. If you look at verse 12, there's a prophecy built into the covenant. It says, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. You can tell what that prophecy is about, right? That's Israel in bondage in Egypt he's talking about. And it was told to Abraham long before it ever happened. And Moses, who, who wrote Genesis, includes this information so that his generation, the Exodus generation, will know that God is in charge of all of history and he's ordained all of these events and their 400 years in bondage was told to Abraham and was in God's providential plan all along. And now they're going to be heading into the Holy Land, in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And there's this really interesting note here in verse 15 and 16 about some of the people living there, the Amorites. He says in verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Did you catch that sentence? The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. They have to sin more. 
they have to reach the saturation point at which God's judgment will burst forth on them. And it isn't time. That's what he's telling them. So I'm going to park Israel in Egypt for 400 years. And they're going to have reasons for why that's going on with them, but the Amorites have to get to this point of judgment. And that appears to be one of the reasons Israel was in Egypt, to allow the Amorites to reach the saturation point. So in Abraham's time, God's patience towards the Amorites was very much in effect. He was waiting and waiting, not asleep, counting, reckoning, taking an account of what they were doing until the day when they reached the saturation point. 400 years of adding to their record of evil, 400 years of defying God's moral law, 400 years of child sacrifices, of abominable perversions, injustice, and wickedness. And when it was time, God used Israel to conquer and destroy them as a people. Now I know modern readers of the Old Testament, especially the book of Joshua, are really disturbed by um, the way the Israelites went in and annihilated these people groups. You know, whole peoples were wiped out or pushed out, eliminated by God's command to do that. It's a pretty horrifying thing, really. How could a good God do that? That's what the question you always hear. But, you know, something in me kind of pops up and says, how could a good God not do that? Because these people deserved it. They deserved it. Their saturation point had been reached. You know, people are mad at God for allowing evil in the world, and then they're mad at him when he destroys it. So he can't really win, but... Uh, at least in the minds of people, you know. But he allows human evil for a reason. To, I think to see how truly twisted and corrupt and fallen we really are. Because if you follow any civilization, it always gets really twisted and corrupted. And he destroys peoples in history so we can see how he feels about that evil. So he allows evil for a period of time to see how, so we can see what humanity is and then he punishes it so we understand how he feels about it. So God acts in time so we will know that there's a day of reckoning. Sometimes God uses natural consequences to eliminate wicked nations like disasters or conquest by other greedy powers. Sometimes he acts himself like he did in Abraham's day actually, Sodom and Gomorrah. That happened during Abraham's lifetime. God destroyed those cities by direct action. I think we're more comfortable if he does that. But in Joshua's time, God ordered his people to be the instrument of destruction on the Canaanite peoples, the wicked peoples, including the Amorite peoples. Why? So Israel would remember and fear to follow that same path, that they would see, well, that's what they did, and that's what God brought upon them through us, and God says, if you do what they did, I will do to you what you're doing to them. How could you forget, if you were the instrument of, of destruction, what that means when God says it will come upon you. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, he warns Israel, he says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall do 
Not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So that land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which it has been before you. So he's saying, you obey me or the land will spew you out in the same way it did the people that you're replacing. So the image is quite powerful. They are spewing out people. So the nation of Israel had its warning to remain in the land. They have to reject evil and embrace God's ways earnestly. They had to do it. They had to be committed to it. And so the first generation, Joshua's generation, actually did that. They were an obedient people. They moved into the land. But then it says in the book of Judges, the very next generation, their children forgot all about it because they weren't witnesses of that judgment. It was no big deal to them. They started worshiping false gods, intermarrying with pagan peoples, raising their kids as pagans, and the whole thing went downhill. And you know, the theme of the book of Judges is what? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, right? Every man did what was right in his own eyes in the holy land, the promised land, with the covenant people. Those were the choices that they made. And from that point on, things get really bad idolatry and corruption and greed and rebellion against God's laws and there's a few good kings that show up in the kingdom of Judah but they can't stop the tide only briefly kind of squash it down but then it pops back up and keeps going hundreds of years God sends prophets all through that time to warn them and to plead with them come back to the Lord you need to be obedient he's going to spew you out of this land you're going to you're going to be destroyed if you don't the prophets were rejected the prophets were killed and eventually Israel was crushed ruthlessly by Babylon and Assyria and taken off into captivity. But God brought them back and, and they were chastised and they stopped being idolatrous. But the next 400 years after they came back after the captivity, you, you, they were no more worshiping idols. They finally were cured. But they started developing this religion, this um, religious Judaism, which started out well based on the revivals under um, Ezra and Nehemiah. And it got corrupted too. It became, uh, it went in the wrong direction. There, it became this gradual uh, building up of man-made religion piled on top of the law of God and God was forgotten and they became superstitious and legalistic and they buried the heart of the law and they kept people from knowing the living God. That's what Jesus is attacking in Matthew 23, the way the Pharisees had so corrupted the true faith that people didn't even know who God was. So the revealed faith, the true faith, became just a religion. So finally, at the right time, God sends his son into the world, Christmas, not just anywhere, but to those chosen people, to the children of Abraham, the ones the covenant promises were made to. And he is the promised one. He's the Messiah. They're gonna turn on him too, which has been the story we've followed all through Matthew. So there are, there are well, let's go to Matthew 23 now. You can turn there if you want to. You can't understand Matthew 23 properly without all that background I just gave you. Okay, that's why I did it. You'll have to forgive me. But the ultimate gift that God gave is going to be soundly rejected. So there's all these woes that Jesus pronounces upon Israel. We've been looking at it the last couple weeks. Curses. And the final one is laid against them for seeking Jesus' death. And he calls them hypocrites. He's been calling them that. The word hypocrites we've talked about means actor. 
Why is he calling them actors? Why doesn't he call murderers murderers? Because they prided themselves on claiming that if they had lived in the days of the old prophets, they would have believed them and they would have honored them and not condemned them like their ancestors did. That's what they would say. So let's look at verse 29 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors, For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, verse 31, you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Because Jesus can read their hearts and he knows that murder, murdering him is on their minds. And they are exactly where their fathers were spiritually. God sends a messenger and they want him dead. They make a great show of honoring the righteous men. They build statues to them. They honor them. They have special days to remember them. The prophets. But the most righteous man of all that's ever walked on this earth, they want him dead. So they're just like the people that killed the prophets. Only even worse, because this is God's son. So here's where the historical context comes in here. This, this l- latest rejection of what God is doing, the final move against the ultimate messenger that God has sent, Messiah himself, God's own son, that's the saturation point. They've reached it. They've come up to it. You can't sink lower than murdering God. So Jesus says in verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. It's the same thing. It's like the Amorites. Fill it up. It's got to get up to this point, this saturation point. And you've been doing it all these centuries and you are the true sons of your fathers who killed the prophets and killed God's messengers and put them in prison and drove them out and didn't believe them. So fill it up, finish it, finish it. Let's finish it. So like the Amorites of old, he tells them to go ahead and complete what their fathers started, casting off the yoke of God. So they're too hardened to change, and he's saying they should fulfill the impulses of their own sinful natures and fill the cup of iniquity to the brim. So this war against God's messengers has gone on all this time, and now it's time to finish it. So they're going to kill Christ and afterward his messengers. Verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And what Jesus said was going to happen, that's what happened. Israel rejected Christ and then his prophets and then his apostles 
Persecution was the lot of the early Christian church. That's what they faced on a regular basis. At first from Israel, Israel, the leaders of Israel. And that was the final straw. So God's patience, which had been there for thousands of years, came to an end. And he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish in sending the Savior into the world. And the nation of Israel accomplished what they were working toward for centuries, which is provoking God to wrath. And it came. So in A.D. 70... Jesus was almost certainly crucified in A.D. 33, so less than 40 years later. So I'm 60 years old. It would have been like Jesus was crucified when I was 23. It would be like that, that far away. And the Romans came in. It was truly a, a Roman holocaust brought upon Israel. Mass slaughter, the destruction of Jerusalem as a city. Um, people that weren't killed were sent into slavery. Um, people were scattered all over the place trying to save their lives. Um, there's a great description. It's, a, it's interesting that there aren't very many detailed histories in the ancient world, but God happened to plant a man named Josephus who was a Jewish historian, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. He lived through that. He witnessed the fall of Jerusalem. He was a Jew, but he was with the Romans in their camp um, on their side in a way. And he gave great detailed descriptions of what happened there and it's horrific you know we read in the Roman histories about oh they destroyed this city and killed everybody but he describes it in great great detail we still have that information starved them out people eating their own children during a siege um, people trying to escape crucified in perverse and weird ways outside the walls just to torment those inside if they tried to escape or run away that's what was going to happen to them I mean it went on for months and finally they broke in burned the temple killed everyone they could find enslaved everybody else and he's telling them he's telling them I suppose Jesus could have said all these things with a, a, a cold firm resolution kind of an, an emotional detachment from them who wanted him dead this sort of pronouncement against them but that isn't the way he is Matthew records for us how Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem he laments, not, not the destruction of great buildings, but for the people. So verse 37, you can hear his heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the heart of Jesus. He's not longing for their doom. He's longing for their salvation. And when he says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, whenever you see that sort of repetitive address in scripture, it conveys a lot of emotion, deep emotion. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. His heart is stirred at the thought of her doom and all the souls that would not be reconciled to God. He's grieving over that. How often I wanted to gather you. Is he talking about just during his ministry or is he talking about all the long centuries as the son of God in heaven that he wanted for them to come? Probably both. Generation after generation did not come. They abused the prophets and scorned the word and what you see in Jesus here is exactly how God feels about sinful people. He loves them. He grieves over them. So we not only hear that love, we actually see it. 
his complete willingness here to shelter people from danger if they will come. And that's the image everyone in Israel would have seen many, many times. He actually compares himself to a mother hen. Here's the son of God saying, I'm like a mother hen. You know, a chicken hawk flies overhead and the mother hen sees it and spreads her wings and clucks out and all the little, little guys come and hide under her, her wings. A storm threatens and lightning flashes and it's looking dangerous outside and she clucks again and the downpour begins and she opens her wings and all the little chicks come and hide under her wings for shelter and protection and she moves them over to a cozier spot and the Old Testament has imagery like that about God too for his people. Psalm 91, it begins like this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And the psalm just goes on from there describing God's protective power. So Jesus knows that doom is coming, the doom that's ordained by God against wickedness because he's holy and just. It has to come or he won't be just. But God makes a way of escape in the very person that they're rejecting, his son, and in him is a shelter from the wrath of God. In him is safety and security. So notice in verse 37, Jesus points to himself as the source of salvation and security. That's another way, by the way, he declares his divinity because that's who God was. So when Jesus talks about himself being that way, as a mother hen, the hen offers shelter from the storm. Christ offers shelter from the storm. The mother hen puts herself in harm's way to protect her chicks. Christ took the storm of God's wrath for, for us as he offered his life as the Passover lamb. lamb. Man's biggest problem, human beings' biggest problems, my biggest problem, your biggest problem, is sin, right? Sin separates the human race from God. Sin places man under the wrath of God because God is just and holy. Sin pollutes everything and corrupts everything, wrecks everything. And God solved the sin problem in Christ. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, it says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. So redemption, forgiveness, restoration to God in Christ. That's really good news. That's good news for everybody because his wings are there to protect you if you run under them. That's what the gospel means, good news, right? But only a few people recognize it as good news. So the storm comes, or the hawk is swooping down, claws ready, and the mother hen calls out, cluck, 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 and opens her wings, and the chicks just run around and stand out there in the open and don't come. That's, that's what's going on. The Savior calls and invites people to shelter under him, and he will bear the wrath of God on himself, and I'll take my chances. That's how people feel. People don't want safety in him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How tragic. This final rejection of salvation. I wanted to, but you were unwilling, he says. That's so sad. And it's that very thought, that the, the, the idea the storm will never come. Oh, that hawk will never grab me. Um, but it, it did come. 
Your house is left to you desolate, he says. And that's when the Romans came. They became a persecuted people, a people without a country for 1,900 years. No temple, no way to worship according to the laws of Moses. For centuries they couldn't do that. They still can't do that. So it happened to them like it happened to the Sodomites. It happened to Israel like it happened to the Amorites. But there's a really big difference with Israel. You know what the big difference is? They are a chosen people. They're a covenant people. They have promises. They have promises from God. So God promised to bless them in the land and that they would be the center of the world under the Messiah in Jerusalem and Jerusalem would be Messiah's capital and the whole world would stream there for wisdom and bring tribute to them and they would be the center of everything. He promised that that was gonna happen. The promises made to Abraham were unconditional and supported by many, many prophecies throughout the Old Testament for for the next 1,600 years. So there's a glorious future for Israel under the Messiah, which Sodom never had, Gomorrah never had, the Amorites never had. They didn't have those promises. But Israel has them. It's just such a tragedy that it's going to be at least 2,000 years of not having them fulfilled because of their unwillingness to come. 2,000 years without the Messiah that God had sent them. But that's the meaning of verse 39. I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, and they will say it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus returns, they shall see him indeed and know him as his people. And they will not see him until that day. Many years and many generations, far too many did not see or know him. But the good news is they will say, and he uses language from Psalm 118 here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're gonna say that. That's a wonderful, great promise. And they're gonna mean it. And they will happily embrace Jesus as their Messiah. So he knows that great blessing is coming one day. But he grieves over the choice of his generation, which brings the wickedness of Israel to its completion and the murder of God's son. They didn't want him, so desolation follows. So what does that mean for me? What does that mean for our day? Well, you've got to personalize this. It's a tragedy when a nation rejects the Messiah, but it's just as big a tragedy when an individual rejects the Messiah that God sends into the world. It's a tragedy You and I know that we don't measure up to God's expectations. You know you're a sinful person. And if you know that God is holy and righteous and good, then you know that sin is a burden that every human being has to bear, that has to be lifted because we're guilty before God. Well, where can a man flee from the wrath of God? Where do you go? Well, I could get in a spaceship and fly up into space, but he's there. I could get in a bathysphere and go deep in the ocean, but he's there. It's all his. There's no place you can hide. He's inescapably there, wherever you are. Well, how can we be safe from him, from his judgment on sin? In his son, sheltering under the wings like a mother hen that he offers. His death in our place is the shelter from divine wrath. That's why we're always singing about the cross of Jesus, because that's the place of shelter for us. So if you haven't done that, if you haven't sought his protection for your life, you've got to do that. You've got to do it. Put your faith in Jesus because you've got to know he's there for you. He's spreading his wings. He's He's opening 
that safe place. Come under my protection. Here it is safe for you from God's wrath. The disaster that befell Israel was due entirely to one word that Jesus says, unwilling. You were unwilling to come. Don't be foolish and unwilling. Hundreds of years ago, a man reflecting on this very verse, he wrote, there's nothing between sinners and eternal happiness but their proud, carnal, unbelieving unwillingness. That's a gentle way of saying it. But it's true. Don't let pride and carnality and unwillingness keep you from infinite joy in the presence of God and His Son forever. Humble yourself and put off unwillingness. I strongly suggest you do not plan on that reckoning day when you stand before God saying to Him, I am so wonderful, you just need to let me in. Don't plan on that. The correct response is, Lord God, I saw what you did for me in sending your Son into the world. And when I understood that you sent Him to die for me and offer me shelter from your anger against sin, your just wrath, I came under his wings and I gave myself to him. Then he'll say, come on in. You're my child. Don't say the one. Say and mean the other. You've got to do it. You've got to do it now. That's your only hope in the face of divine justice. That's the place of safety. Let's pray. Oh God, you were willing. Willing to send us a wonderful savior who offered his life in our place before your holy wrath. He is our shelter, your gift to us. And you want us to come. You invite us to run to Jesus as our Savior and King. So make us willing. If our eyes are closed, open them. If our heart is unwilling, make it willing. Open our eyes to see the greatness and the love of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.